Section 29 of Criminal Investigation, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. Criminal Investigation, a Practical Handbook for Magistrates, Police Officers and Lawyers, Volume 3, by Hans Gross. Translated by John Adam and John Collier Adam. Cheating and Fraud Continued Section 6. Frauds Relating to Antiquities and Works of Art Speaking generally, it may be said that the most interesting fraudulent processes are those relating to objects of art and antiquities. The objects in question are, in themselves, worth the trouble spent upon them. People who fabricate them are hardly ever commonplace people. The sums which change hands in connection with them are often very high, and judicial questions connected with these cases, however interesting they may be, are still for the most part awaiting elucidation. The magnitude and number of these frauds are enormous. The taste for antiquities has, in a short time, developed immensely and continues to develop. The majority of objects of incontestable beauty are in hands which will not part with them. The remainder are broken or preserved only in part, the public never ceases to search for curiosities and antiquities. Old collectors continue to collect. New collectors start collecting. Dealers can no longer comply with the demand. Prices are high. The skill of imitators increases. And, in consequence, when the authentic article cannot be obtained, it is made to order. That it is fraud when a false article is sold for an authentic one at a high price, there can be no doubt. The difficulty is to know where the fraud begins. An alteration, repair or embellishment, as people in this trade call it, is not in itself a falsification, and especially with regard to antiquities, every falsification is not fraud. One must have spoken on the subject with collectors, or be a collector oneself, to be convinced that the jurist cannot help being allowed to make some concession in this respect to common opinion. A connoisseur or collector rarely leaves a fine antique in the condition in which he has received it. He cleans it, brings out the colours, alters repairs already made and not in harmony with the rest of the article, gums and glues broken places, and replaces missing parts. In short, he tries to repair the object, as well as he can, to make it appear as valuable as possible. The pride the connoisseur takes in doing up a broken article is considerably greater than that he takes in having spotted, recognised, and bought it. Real connoisseurs are nearly always good renovators, confiding old objects of value to no other hands but their own. Of course, they must know how to model, glaze, glue, paint, draw, engrave, cement, solder, and a thousand other similar things. What beautiful and precious articles we find made out of old rubbish having no value and no beauty. No doubt for this the renovator must be a connoisseur of culture, knowing not only how to give an article shape and colour, but also how to do so without changing its style and restoring it, so to speak, instinctively, so that it has absolutely the same appearance as it had when new. An article thus transformed has evidently gained in value. This cannot be denied, but the question is, has it the same value it would have had if it had never been damaged? And to this question the only reply that can be given is no. 
Ignorant people usually say that an imitation has absolutely the same value as its original if it makes the same impression. If so, an imitation of the celebrated salt seller Benvenuto Cellini, plus the value of the metal, would be equivalent to the original itself, which no one would dare to suggest. Moreover, a perfectly genuine object has an artistic and historical value which ignorant people cannot understand. But if they would reflect that the history of a people may be read in the articles produced by it, given, of course, that these form an uninterrupted and authentic series as regards shape, colour and material, they would be obliged to confess that the great value of an antiquity principally lies in its authenticity. An article which has been renovated may gain in value through being more beautiful, but it loses in value through being less genuine. But the collector who has renovated an article with much art and care is free to say what he likes about the renovation in question. There are some collectors who are fond of showing what they have done, others, on the contrary, take care to keep it very dark. The latter course has certain inconveniences, especially as the article may pass into other hands, and thus usurp a genuine character. Now it is exactly this, passing into other hands, that is important from our point of view. With the sale of a renovated article, the buyer must be told what is restored and what is genuine, so that he may be able to value the article. If the renovation is passed over in silence, there may be fraud. Doubtless here again good faith may exist. The author has himself dealt with the following case. An article of which there only remained a small genuine portion had been restored. That is to say, it was almost entirely new. Unfortunately, the renovation had not implicitly followed the style of the old piece. The first person into whose hands the article came in this state carefully removed the small genuine piece and substituted, therefore, a piece in the very same style as the large portion which had been added by his predecessor. Now, the second gentleman does not care to sell it, and when he does decide to do so, he may not say that he has repaired it, and if the repair is found, he will probably say that he bought the article as genuine, whereas, as a matter of fact, he was himself duped. The other side of the preceding question has reference to the buyer. Here again, large concessions must be made to the customs of the times. People who would not hesitate to inform a shopkeeper that he has given them back too much change, or delivered to them merchandise of better value than they have bought, have not the slightest scruple in buying for a song an antiquity of price from some poor devil who has no idea of its value. In this way, a large number of fine collections, consisting of the most precious old articles, are built up, and no one has ever thought of considering their procedure reprehensible, though they fall under section 197 of the Austrian Penal Code and section 263 of the German Penal Code. How can a perfectly honest person be, or wish to be, a curio hunter? If the prosecution for frauds relating to works of art and antiquities are relatively rare in some countries, the reason is partly that people who have been made fools of do not like to become the laughing stock of others, preferring rather to keep quiet than lodge a complaint, and also partly that, owing to certain technical reasons, it is difficult to bring such a prosecution to a successful termination. Fit experts are difficult to find, and investigating officers who know something about the matter even more difficult. It is indeed no easy matter to take an interest in a subject which requires deep study and complete detailed information. When he only, so to speak, swims on the surface, 
when he allows himself to drift aimlessly among the depositions of witnesses and the statements of experts, the investigating officer is only too happy to wind up such a troublesome case without being obliged to enter very deeply into it. But if he desires to be conscientious and understand what he talks about and has to form an opinion upon, he must take care to attack the subject beforehand to obtain information from collectors or honest, intelligent and well-educated curio dealers and experts. And he must also read some special books upon the subject, which are, unhappily, far from numerous. In the following pages, the author is content to enumerate some of the many articles which are falsified. A. Prehistoric Objects These objects are fabricated by the cartload. The material is cheap, the skill required is very small, and prices are good. The articles made are principally stone weapons, arrowheads, hatchets, hammers, artistic articles, engravings on bone, stones, jewels, etc., petrified objects, impressions, and even antediluvian bones. Many amusing stories are related about the facility with which learned men are taken in by falsification of this kind. B. Egyptian Antiquities For the fabrication of these articles, a sort of domestic industry has grown up among the Egyptian peasantry and Arabs, an industry which can hardly meet the demand. Scarabs, idols, mummies of animals, made of glass paste and silicious clay, are manufactured in enormous quantities and sold at small prices. But in Europe, these objects become very dear, though all merchants know their birthplace and sell them as genuine. As regards rolls of papyri, they are unrolled, cut up into strips lengthwise, and re-rolled on wooden sticks, which are hidden at the ends. Each stick is covered with but a single sheet of papyrus, but appears to be a complete roll. Reader's note footnote. Such scrolls are often today examined by Rontgen rays, which allow the piece of wood introduced to be clearly recognised. Consequently, a roll of pasteboard is now introduced, which, under the rays, looks like several layers of papyrus. Reader's note footnote ends. From one roll, many others are made, all of them valueless. In this way, Ramses, king of Egypt, in a black basalt of Thebes, which was nothing else than Antwerp schist, has been sold for a 100,000 francs. The manufacture of the Ramses cost the seller 1,100 francs. An old Dresden doctor fabricated out of the corpse of a beautiful young girl, which he had purchased, the mummy of Queen Nitocris, and sold it for its weight in gold. The fraud was only discovered when the mummy began to exude a disagreeable odour. C. Antique Pottery The number of false articles among the vases and small figures we see everywhere nowadays is incalculable. To get an approximate idea, one has but to look at the numerous counterfeits collected together in the compartments reserved for the purpose in big collections. And how well made they are. The clay of today is the same as that of formerly, and the baking is identical. Chemistry furnishes us with colours quite as good as those of other days, and we have a sufficiency of models, and in these conditions the real has to be distinguished from the false. The best experts are deceived. Every day, in the most carefully arranged collections, false Tanagra and Mirhina figures are discovered. In this connection, incredible things occur. Among many cases may be quoted as an example, the falsifications of a simple village master mason, Michael Kaufman of Rheinzeburn, who for 40 years, 1820 to 1860, 
deceived many French and German experts. He made Roman ware in immense quantities, plunged the learned into despair with his inscriptions, and discredited the Roman art trade with his flying tortoises and other attributes of the gods. But his falsifications were only discovered after decades, when they were brought to a standstill by his making a Minerva with the royal Bavarian padded helmet, and the Roman emperor Antonius with Hessian boots and a full-bottomed wig. But numberless articles from Michael Kaufmann's manufactory are still considered genuine in French and German museums, and the learned controversy over his inscriptions rages still. At one time, old articles of pottery could be distinguished from their great lightness. Why they are so light we cannot say, but such is the fact. But the falsifier has now succeeded in giving the same lightness to his products by mixing a large quantity of meal, which carbonizes in baking, with the potter's clay. But the connoisseur comes along with his magnifying glass and discovers that the articles of pottery thus falsified are, owing to the carbonization of the meal, much more porous on the surface than the antique. To prevent the connoisseur from discovering this, the falsifier proceeds as follows. Before baking, he covers the yet unfinished article, composed as it is of potter's clay and meal, with a thin covering of pure potter's clay, wherever the surface is visible. The porosity cannot then be discovered unless the vase be broken and the break examined. But how can this be done? The same procedure is followed in the manufacture of Tanagra figurettes, nowadays so much sought after. Moreover, the lightness is increased by fine workmanship, which, of course, makes them more fragile. But it is only when dealing with a real connoisseur that it is necessary to use such tricks. For the ordinary commercial who buys, collects, and brings home such articles, all such devices are superfluous. He takes such manufactured articles without hesitation and floods the whole world with them. And, as all the falsifications are generally made with the greatest refinement, one can understand the words of one of the greatest experts of the ceramic arts. For all articles of pottery there is absolutely no sure means of recognition. We must trust to the place of origin. Alas, yes, the place of origin. As if there, too, they did not deceive and dupe the world. Whoever wishes nowadays to sell a well-imitated article does not expose it in the shop of a merchant, but places it in the ancient garret of some poor widow, who swears that it has come down to her from her grandparents, at whose house she played with it, and she finishes by deciding to let it go for an enormous sum. Every day are such stories told, and one can hardly help laughing when one sees the happy owner unfolding a certificate given him by the widow, certifying that the jug sold today, he follows a detailed description of the jug, is a gift made by Count X to his nurse, the grandmother of the vendor. D. Glassware. Articles of glass are more easily counterfeited than articles of pottery, for glass changes but little, even after a very long time, and even such small changes as tarnishing and iridescence, rainbow colouring, are easy to produce artificially. Either substances capable of iridescing are introduced into the matter used in the manufacture of the glass, or the finished article is treated in a particular manner to obtain the oldest glass. Even under natural influences, changes are sometimes produced which, instead of centuries, take but several years. In this way, we sometimes find, among old stable windows, panes much more iridescent than the most beautiful lacrimal urns of ancient Rome. The amount of glass, in imitation of the antique and Middle Ages, produced from the factories of Isola, Bohemia, and of Belgium is inconceivable. 
In the factories themselves it is sold as imitation, at a very moderate price, but once it is in the shop of the old art dealer, it immediately becomes real old glass. In the old fortress of Rilgersburg, there is a window in the dining hall on which are engraved the following words. Drinking commenced the 17th May, 1549, and was kept up until St. Vincent's Day, and every day all became tight. This little window has already been replaced many times, and for each renewal, a collector believes he has the real one. E. Old Coins and Medals Coins have been falsified ever since they have existed, and as it is easy to imitate them perfectly, it is not so surprising that many intelligent collectors have renounced the pleasure of collecting them, saying that it is impossible to know what one has got. The counterfeiter knows perfectly well that it is easy to recognise coins made by melting in a mould or covered by electroplating, so he strikes them from a die. Further, he is not ignorant that in former times there were no steel dies, so he is careful to make his of bronze. If, in addition to this, he takes the trouble to shake the coins up in a bag and bury them for some time, no one is able to distinguish the real coins from the counterfeit. The sums fraudulently obtained in this way are very considerable. Particularly dangerous under certain circumstances is the art coinage, which often, in an artistic fashion, offers rare coins to collectors. In itself, this is very useful, as not every collector can pay the enormous sums of money that are asked for some coins which he desires to have to perfect his collection. The honourable collector says openly which of his coins are imitations. If he dies, the whole collection is perhaps sold, and the genuine coins and imitations go together. In a recent law case, for example, it was proved that today so many excellent imitations of the famous Kuchiako Rubentalon of 1504, each genuine specimen of which is worth from 1,200 to 1,500 florins, are in circulation, that nobody can tell a genuine coin from an imitation. Reader's note footnote begins, This case is very instructive, and if one may say so, very simple. A man obtained possession of a Koitschaka Rubenthaler, and on some plausible pretext was able to get a number of imitations of this thaler made in a well-known mint. He then made impressions of the thaler in tinfoil, and sent them to a number of well-known collectors of coins, asking if they had a similar coin for sale, as he had a commission to acquire one for 1,100 florins. Naturally, all answered in the negative, as only four or five genuine coins of this sort exist. The man waited for some time, then he wrote to the same collectors under another name, and offered them a Coinchaka Rubenthala at 700 florins. Most of them jumped at the offer with the intention of selling the Thaler with a profit of 400 florins to the person who had offered 1,100 florins. The forger did a good business, and so there exist today four times as many of these coins as before. Reader's note footnote ends. F. Jewellery in Precious Metals Such jewels should always be mistrusted. Really good articles of this kind are in the possession of rich persons or have passed into museums and other fine collections. As regards jewels of simple workmanship, they have been melted down or else preserved, so that they cannot be called articles of commerce. If then a really beautiful jewel is found in the shops, it is a jewel manufactured in pieces, being really a genuine article of very simple workmanship which has been covered with ornamentation and flourishes. The verification of the stamp, form, and chemical composition can give no result, because all these are genuine. 
and yet it is perhaps with this kind of article that falsification is most easily proved. It is indeed difficult to manufacture them without a model. No doubt the workmen of former days knew how to harmonise with great skill the shape and ornamentation of the article, but the forger, knowing nothing of styles, most often commits blunders. Even when he has excellent models of ornamentation of the period, but destined for another shape, he cannot make them harmonise with the jewel. The real connoisseur, who would probably know better how to do it himself, can at once recognise the fraud, and is at least able to say that the article is not entirely genuine. As regards real models, which he requires to copy, the forger cannot procure them, he can only look at them, and that is not much good to him. We would hasten to add that the investigating officer should here, and in analogous cases, really do something to avoid taking as an expert the first merchant he comes across. He must find a real connoisseur who loves the subject and has an extensive and deep acquaintance with it. Sir E. C. Cox tells of a common trick practised in India in connection with precious stones and jewels. Another ingenious method for the appropriation of one's neighbour's money is for a soi descent merchant to go round with genuine pearls and jewels, which are for sale at marvellously cheap rates. A would-be purchaser is much struck with their appearance, but, in spite of the favourable terms offered, his love of haggling causes little difficulty in coming to terms. The salesman, in the most confiding way, offers to leave his wares till the next morning, telling his friend good-humouredly that when his wife has seen the pearls, she will never let him part with them. In the morning there is another interview and bargaining recommences. The ornaments are bought out, the dealer takes them up, and begins to dilate upon their splendid qualities. When he raises a cry, and says that false jewels have been substituted in the night for his real ones, and loudly demands justice. In the confusion that ensues, he contrives to conceal in his girdle the original articles, and produces imitations, which he has handy for the purpose. He yells and screams, in the manner of the East, and shows the bystanders the sham pearls or stones, which are universally admitted to be made of glass. The intending purchaser, overwhelmed at the charges brought against him and terrified by threats of the law, is only too glad to come to terms and lay down a lump sum in compensation for the alleged disappearance of the original jewellery. End of section 29. Recording by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia.